Part three, chapter four of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three, chapter four, Recorder of Deeds. Although I was not reappointed to the office of Marshal of the District of Columbia, as I had reason to expect, and to believe that I should be, not only because under me the office had been conducted blamelessly, but because President Garfield had solemnly promised Senator Conkling that I should be so appointed. I was given the office of Recorder of Deeds for the District of Columbia. This office was, in many respects, more congenial to my feelings than was that of United States Marshal of the District, which made me the daily witness in the criminal court of a side of the district life to me most painful and repulsive. Happily, I was never required personally to superintend or witness an execution, or to take any part in one. That sad and solemn business had, prior to my appointment, been committed to the warden of the jail, but the contact with the criminal class and the responsibility of watching and taking care of criminals were in every way distasteful to me, and hence I would, under any circumstances, have preferred the office of recorder of deeds to that of marshal. The duties of recorder, though specific, exacting, and imperative, are easily performed. The office is one that imposes no social duties whatever, and therefore neither fettered my pen nor silenced my voice in the cause of my people. I wrote much and spoke often, and perhaps because of this activity, gave to envious tongues a pretext against me. I think that I was not, while in this office, or in that of Marshall, less outspoken against what I considered the errors of rulers than while outside of the office. My cause, first, midst, last, and always, whether in office or out of office, was and is that of the black man, not because he is black, but because he is a man, and a man subjected in this country to peculiar wrongs and hardships. As in the case of United States Marshal, so in that of Recorder of Deeds, I was the first colored man who held the office, and like all innovations on established usage, my appointment did not meet with the approval of the conservatives and old-time rulers of the country, but, on the contrary, met with resistance from both these and the press, as well as from the street corners. Happily for me, the American people possess in large measure a proneness to acquiescence. They readily submit to the powers that be, and to the rule of the majority. This sheet-anchor of our national stability, prosperity, and peace served me in good stead in this crisis in my career, as indeed it had done in many others. I held the office of Recorder of Deeds of the District of Columbia for nearly five years, having, so to speak, broken the ice by giving to the country the example of a colored man at the head of that office, it has become the one special office to which, since that time, colored men have aspired. Much that is sheep-like is illustrated in the colored race, and perhaps the same is true in all races. Where one goes, the others are apt to follow. The office has, ever since I left it, been sought for and occupied by colored men. In this, if not in anything else, I have opened the gate and led the way upward for the people with whom I am identified. The office of recorder, when I held it, was far less remunerative than it has since become. With the almost wonderful increase of population, after long years of stationary condition due to the existence of slavery, and with the vast improvements in its sanitary conditions, there has come to Washington a surprising activity in the real estate business. 
as the office of recorder is supported by fees and every transfer of property and every deed of trust and every mortgage executed must be recorded the income of this office has risen to a larger sum than that of any office of the national government except that of the president of the united states in my experience in public life i have learned that there are many ways by which confidence in public men may be undermined and destroyed and against which they are comparatively helpless one of the most successful methods is to start the rumour that a man has made a large fortune out of the government and is rich this method of political warfare i will hardly say assassination has not escaped the vigilant eye of the afro-american press or of the aspirant and office-seeker who when he has found a public man supposed to be in the way of his ambition has resorted to this device in my case this method has not only been well studied but diligently and vigorously employed the surprising feature is that at this point no amount of testimony and denial has any effect it is only necessary to get the rumour well started to have it roll on and increase like a ball in adhesive snow i have for instance seen myself described in some of our afro-american newspapers as a man of large fortune worth half a million dollars and the impression was given by the writer that i had made this large fortune out of the government the absurdity of all this would readily assert itself to the thoughtful readers of these papers if they would only stop to think but unfortunately all the readers of afro-american or other newspapers are not very thoughtful or painstaking in such investigations but usually accept a rumour or an it is said as law and gospel the rumours of my wealth are not only not true but in the nature of my work and history could not be true a half a million indeed the fact is i never was worth one-fifth of that sum and never expect to be the offices held by me during the eleven years of my official life never brought me over three thousand dollars a year above the current expenses of living and during some of the years my income was much less than this sum while i hold it to be no sin to be rich but on the contrary wish there were many rich men among american citizens of colour the notoriety foolishly or maliciously given me has in some measure placed me unfavourably before the people i have most endeavoured to serve and has naturally enough subjected me to some annoyances which i might otherwise have escaped aside from the envy and prejudice excited by seeing one man in better circumstances than another it has overwhelmed me with applications to travel and lecture at my own expense for this and that good object it has also brought me much correspondence to occupy and consume the time and attention which perhaps might be more useful employed in other directions numerous pressing and pathetic appeals for assistance written under the delusion of my great wealth have come to me from coloured people from all parts of the country with heart-rending tales of destitution and misery such as i would gladly relieve did my circumstances admit of it this confidence in my benevolent disposition has been flattering enough and gratefully appreciated by me but i have found it difficult to make the applicants believe that i have no power to justify it while some of these applications for aid have been distressing others have been simply amusing in their absurdity one person wholly unknown to me besought me for the modest sum of four thousand dollars she had seen a house that would exactly suit herself and daughter for a home it could be purchased for that amount and she implored me to send her the money 
another wrote me setting forth the goodness of divine providence in blessing me with great riches and beseeching me to forward to her the price of a piano assuring me that she had never before troubled me for money she knew that her daughter was remarkably gifted in music and could make her way in the world if to start with she could only have a piano these were no doubt honest people and applied to me confidently expecting to get the money for which they asked they were not of that class of professional beggars who hide away in garrets cellars and other out-of-the-way places and load the mails with ingeniously framed begging letters to persons known to have means and supposed to be benevolent and upon whom they think they can impose they are however of that large class of persons who are perfectly willing to subsist at other people's expense happily the speculators in human credulity generally reveal the presence of fraud by their elaborate and overdrawn tales of woe and suffering and thus defeat themselves the witness who gives evidence merely from memory and not from the knowledge of the case then present to his mind may tell a straight story but one not so straight will often better secure belief the skilful lawyer can generally detect in the perfection of the story the vice of the evidence among the numerous and persistent beggars whom i have to encounter in this class are those who come in the character of creditors to demand from me the payment of a debt which i especially owe them for the great services which they or their fathers or grandfathers have rendered to the cause of emancipation they have assisted slaves in their flight from bondage they have travelled miles to hear me lecture they remember some things which they heard me say they read everything that i ever wrote their fathers kept stations on the underground railroad they voted the liberty party ticket many years ago when no one else did and much else of the same sort but always concluding with a solid demand for money or for my influence to get positions under the government for themselves or for their friends though i could not exactly see how or why i should be called upon to pay the debt of emancipation for the whole four millions of liberated people i have always tried to do my part as opportunity has offered at the same time it has seemed to me incomprehensible that they did not see that the real debtors in this woeful account are themselves and that the absurdity of their posing as creditors did not occur to them end of part three chapter four